it is 5 p.m. So welcome to the City of Iowa City work session for September 15, 2020. And happy to see all of our counselors here. And I see our um, city manager and Eleanor, our, our city attorney is present. Um, I wanted to see if we had, um, oh, Anna is here from the university, so welcome. Um, so we are gonna get started with our meeting tonight. So again, welcome to everybody. We're gonna start with affordable housing and that was a part of our uh, information packet. And so I think, uh, Jeff, I'll turn it over to you for to get us started. Yeah, thank you, Mayor and Council. Um, uh, as you know, um, you set forth in your strategic plan um, an effort to update our affordable housing uh, plan here in Iowa City. And we wanted to get that conversation kicked off with you tonight. And uh, we felt it would be best to look back at the past year and uh, uh, see some of the programs that we've had in place and what results that they've uh, produced for us here. So I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Tracy Haichu, who's going to uh, share a presentation with you that essentially walks you through the, the uh, written materials you have in your information packet. Hello, um, thank you. Uh, we're excited to present the affordable housing accomplishments for fiscal year 20. I'm going to try and share my screen so you can look at what I'm looking at. Is everybody looking at an affordable housing report? No. Should I go ahead and proceed? Everybody can. You're not seeing it? No. Not on the screen. Do I not have the ability to share my screen? Can you see it now? Yes, we're, it's coming up now. Yep. All right, good. That would have been a long presentation if you had to just sit there and listen to me. Um, okay, so I wanted to start by just a general definition of what is affordable housing before we get to the conversation about the specific program. Just a reminder that affordable housing means that someone pays basically about 30% of their income on housing and utility costs. So for most of our programs, whether they be owner-occupied or rental, we further limit the income that those folks can have in order to take advantage of our program. So for most home buyer owner occupied programs, you have to be under 80% of median income. For rental, you have to be below 60%. That being said, the far majority of our clientele or the people that we serve are below 50% of median income. With these income limits, and I broke it down to what the hourly rate is, you'll find that our cashiers, cooks, janitors, bakers, sales clerks, childcare workers, home health aides, all these folks make about this amount of money and our economy needs them and they need affordable housing. We further look at rent also about what we cap rent at and what um, HUD allows us to charge for rent in our affordable housing and a lot of our affordable housing. No matter what program you have, it usually ties back either to the income of the beneficiary or the HUD rent limit. So the maximum rents for home and CDBG are, is what you see below in that table. With home and CDBG, it further gets reduced by the, well, the utility allowance for tenant paid utilities. So for example, if you're living in a one bedroom unit and you pay 774, if that utility allowance is $92, then rent can't exceed $682. Um, now these are the maximum rents. Some programs limit rent even further, but in general, when we refer to home rents or CDBG fair market rents, these are the rents. They don't tie back to the income. 
what HUD does is they look at the American Community Survey and basically they decided for our market, these are the rents that are modest and the third they represent in our community. So it gets confusing because they don't necessarily tie back to those income limits. Um, this report is a departure from how we normally report. So usually when we're doing CDBG and home report to you at the end of our fiscal year, and that is in the CAPER report, our consolidated annual performance and evaluation report, that reports CDBG home, our housing authority accomplishments. Um, and then we also typically report other programs when they end or at the end of the calendar year. This report looks at everything and tries to give you a comprehensive review of everything that we've done in fiscal year 20 out of neighborhood and development services that involves around housing. And when you look at everything we do, I came up with, well, two of them in our, in our CDBG home goals, but these four goals represent about what all those programs do. And in that Excel spreadsheet that I gave you, you can put every program that we have into one of these goals. And some of these programs serve more than one of these goals, but it's only reported once. So it's only in one location. So just a summary data, we've made 12.4 million in funds available in fiscal year 20. We've spent about 12 million of it to assist 1,780. What programs that consist of, we're gonna go over the affordable housing fund. We're gonna go over the housing rehabilitation program such, such as the South District University program. We're gonna go over our competitive allocations, the housing authority accomplishment data, and then all those legislative uh, programs that we've done either or negotiated through tax regression financing, our riverfront crossing. Um, and we're reporting that because I don't think we've ever reported that in a holistic fashion to you. And we're gonna show you how many units are in compliance during fiscal year 20. So I'll start with the affordable housing fund. We allocate, well, basically county, council allocates a million dollars. They did in fiscal year 20 and fiscal year 19. Then back in July, we switched how we allocated funds. So instead of a land banking and different things, we, we modified the allocation, the distribution formula to what you see in front of you. So 70% goes to the housing trust fund at Johnson County. Out of that 70%, they have to reserve 20% for low income housing tax credits. I'll probably refer to them as LIHTC, but that's what that is. We created an opportunity fund just for flexibility to take advantage of opportunities that come within that year. We're continuing with the Healthy Homes Program. And what I really am proud of is the 10% the that we reserve to help low-income households secure housing. It was a huge gap in our community, a security deposit program of our size. So that's great. And then we reserve 5% for emergent situations that, that, we, that we don't anticipate. Um, the reason why we go through Housing Trust Fund of Johnson County, why we allocate basically 70% of our funds to them, to me, it's a lot about their board. They have highly, persons highly experienced in high housing finance. They review complex projects. But out of all these reasons listed, the one that appeals to me most is that they offer funds on a quarterly basis, including one LIHTC round that precedes the annual application cycle. If this was done administratively, I don't have the staff capacity to have multiple funding rounds every year. So this is great that when they have funds available, they're getting that out to the community. They're taking applications. They're a lot more flexible than federal and state programs, as well as financial institutions with their interest rate and what they, what they approve for funding. So those are some of the reasons why we select Housing Trust Fund of Johnson County to partner with us. Out of their fiscal year 20 allocation of 500,000, they spent 182. They commit the balance of their funds to the next senior apartments. It was a LIHTC project. Unfortunately, 
no life tech applications were received by ISOR or they didn't approve any this year. So the housing trust went back and they quickly reallocated those money to the Cross Park Place 2.0 project, much like the, if you're familiar, many of you are familiar with Cross Park Place, but Shelter House got another award for 2.7 million through the National Housing Trust Fund. They'll start this spring. They estimate total project costs at 6.3 million. So that's where the balance of those funds will get placed into that project. Um, as next senior did not get funded, those funds, at least 190,000 of them, get carried forward to the fiscal year 21 in light tech round. So it sits there, and then when IFA has their next funding round, there will be another Iowa City application, and we'll see, hopefully, that will get funded. We'll also report the accomplishments, but you know, when, the, when a project is finished and we can report beneficiaries, that is when we report project accomplishments. So for, the, for those light tech funds or the projects completed by that the city assisted through housing trust fund. We completed the Delray Ridge and next apartments this fiscal year. Um, you can see the allocation that means over six, I think that's 61 units for affordable housing. Each of those two apartment complexes also have four, four market rate units. So that are the accomplishments that gets reported this fiscal year. Um, light tech projects can bring a lot of new construction but we don't, also, we don't always get an application every year. So having two in one year is great. The next one I was gonna talk about was the 10% allocated annually to help people secure housing. So we established 70,000 for the security deposit program. We entered a contract with community crisis services in February. At the end of fiscal year 20, they spent 27,000 and assisted 31 households. Um, when I called them recently, that number has went up to, they've spent 61888 out of their 70000 So we'll be entering the fiscal year 21 allocation with them this month. So they'll have another 70000 to work with. The 30000 that we reserved for the landlord risk mitigation funds was not able to proceed. We hope to work with the Johnson County Local Homeless Courting Board in fiscal year 21 to set that up. So the funds that ended in fiscal year 20 that weren't spent in that fund go into our opportunity fund. So we don't lose those funds, they just get moved to the opportunity fund. And we'll talk about the balances at the end of the presentation. The emergent funds, we spent the remainder of what we allocated out to the Hawkeye Trailer Park relocation. Um, we spent a total of 17,000, approximately to assist eight households. We spent 2,135 in fiscal year 20, but report the eight households that benefited in this fiscal year because it's done in this fiscal year. And like I said, anything that balance at the end of the year goes into that opportunity fund. So once again, it's available for reallocation. Out of that opportunity fund, the balances that we had, um, we acquired our first vacant lot um, for six townhomes in the Lindemann subdivision. Hopefully we'll be able to add this to a future LIHTC project for family assisted housing. Um, but we have that land, it's available, all the utilities are there, so it's, it's ready for development. And our opportunity funding this year, the 75,000, that money got allocated out to houses and to homes. It paid for the Center for Worker Justice, the COVID relief payments, and fiscal year 20 and then a sum of 21 funds went to the shelter house for the eviction foreclosure prevention program. And I wanted to mention this before I get into our COVID relief efforts, because we do encourage Iowa City residents to apply and determine eligibility for IFA's program before obtaining assistance. The state has allocated this $20 million. We want residents to tap into that $20 million before they come and, and they use our, our local funds. So 
we encourage people to start here, and if they're not eligible or they're denied assistance, then they apply to Community First Services. So we have two, I'm gonna to get to the community program last out of the three, but that 50,000 to the Shelter Health Eviction and Foreclosure Prevention Program, it's for your basics, emergency rent and mortgage or utility assistance for three months. They can self-certify their income if they're impacted financially by COVID. We made those barriers easier. They just have to self-certify. The first payment must be in arrears, but after that, subsequent payments are made on time if the applicant basically self-certifies during the same financial condition originally. Um, the benefit of shelter houses, all their assistance is provided to the coordinated entry system for homeless services. And I'll, I'll explain that benefit when I get to, to the community crisis service. And the payment has to be issued to the landlord, mortgage, or utility provider. For Center for Worker Justice, they allow emergency payments of $600 up to twice in a 12-month period for either rent, mortgage, utilities, food, healthcare, childcare. Um, this is the funding that, you know, if you're not eligible for anything else, be, it's intended for those folks that are not eligible for unemployment or stimulus benefits. They too can self-certify their income if they're impacted financially by COVID and the payment is made to the vendor. If that's not possible, we're allowed on the applicant to submit receipts for eligible expenses. And at one of your most recent council meetings, you allow the city manager to increase allocation for these programs when needed. I was gonna say that for shelter house, <laughs> that for shelter house, um, they were allocated 50,000, they've spent 36,600 to date. And then Center for Worker Justice has spent 16,500 or their 25,000. So those are gonna be needing to be renewed shortly. Our largest program locally is the community crisis service contract that we have with our community development block grant funds. This was a direct allocation from HUD in the first allocation wave of the CARES Act. We dedicated 246,000 to this program. We entered a contract with um, community crisis services, I think in um, July, July 14th of 2020. They've spent $20,941 to date. That money will get quite a bit more as we go because not only are they starting to assist new people, but all those old people that are, all the other people that they've assisted, they'll continue to get rent if they just self-certify. So you're gonna see that number grow quite substantially in, as subsequent months go on. So this is a federal program. It has to be due to COVID. So you do have to document income, income and if you're financially impacted by COVID. They're trying to be flexible in the documentation they provide, they're calling employers, they're, they're accepting what they can, but due to the federal nature of the program, they do have to document it. So we do allow the first payment must be in rears, and then just like shelter house, subsequent payments are made on time if you self-certify, you're in the same financial condition. What's great with community and shelter house is that they use the homeless coordinating system, or the coordinated entry, <coughs> sorry, coordinated entry. So if community gets a referral and they're not able to document what they need to or they can't assist them, they can refer that household to shelter house. It goes, anything that that tenant or that person has provided for documentation gets attached and All right, Mayor, um, you get the B team now. <laughs> Tracy, All right. Tracy looks like she's disconnected, so uh, hopefully she'll jump back in. She certainly knows this uh, better than I do, but um, she's just wrapping up on the uh, community crisis um, uh, program. 
Um, we do have the second allocation of the CARES Act um, on your agenda today that would provide additional funds uh, for this program. Uh, should, should, again, should you approve that uh, proposed allocation that staff has in front of you today. And like Tracy said, although there's uh, only uh, 20,000 spent to date and we have 246, we expect this number to rise pretty quickly. And I'm just, uh, I know council knows this, but uh, we expect the, the housing impact uh, from COVID to last a, a lot longer than, than perhaps the, the virus may itself. So um, uh, keep in mind that we may have um, uh, housing needs that extend uh, pretty far into uh, in, into um, next year. All right, Tracy must still be connected because someone's flipping through these uh, flipping through these slides. So, uh, Tracy, if if can you uh, can you hear me? Okay, Tracy. Just one second, Mayor. Okay, um, Tracy is still controlling this screen. I don't know if uh, Kelly, if you, you can, uh, oh, Tracy, uh, <laughs> we, you can just flip through the next slides, Tracy, otherwise I can bring up the presentation that she sent me earlier today. I have it too, Jeff, but I'd, I'd have to dump Tracy out. The joys of Zoom. All right, Tracy is feverishly trying to get back on. Um, Kelly, why don't you stop the screen share? And if you could bring up the PowerPoint, that would be great. I won't have to hunt for it. Okay. Keep going. Uh, all right, back up there. one. Okay, one, one more forward and then we'll, we'll start with uh, our housing rehabilitation programs. Okay, uh, thank you, uh, Kelly. And if you notice Tracy hop back on, by all means, um, tell me to be quiet and invite her on. <laughs> Um, so in addition to the, uh, the programs that Tracy's outlined before, we have our housing re rehabilitation programs. For fiscal year 20, you see that we spent just under $700,000 to assist 32 homes throughout Iowa City. Uh, the more profile pro high profile programs that we have are the uh, South District program, uh, which was new. That's the picture on the, uh, on the, on the top of the, the PowerPoint there. It's a duplex that uh, we were able to buy and, and, and renovate and, and sell to two um, households that were already living in the, uh, the neighborhood. Uh, we have uh, one other one uh, underway uh, still uh, yet. Um, you can see that the monthly housing costs uh, for each of those homeowners is um, approximately $510. So actually when the uh, project was over, um, the folks that moved into this duplex were actually paying less uh, towards homeownership uh, than they were uh, renting in that same neighborhood. So a, a good success story there. And 
uh, council knows that uh, um, we are exploring some partnerships with Habitat uh, and the Affordable Homes Coalition to, to take this program even further. We also continue with our university home program. Um, we do have one unit for sale uh, on North Dodge that you see there, and we have one other program um, that is under renovation on Douglas Court where we've done a number of these uh, uh, renovations. The lesser known program is actually the first bullet point there, which is our GRIP program. And that's where the majority of funds have spent just over half a million dollars were spent rehabilitating 30 homes. And this is a real critical strategy real for us uh, in order to preserve um, our affordable housing stock. So this is making investment in the existing stock and making sure that folks can stay in their homes longer and that those homes uh, remain affordable going forward. All right, jump ahead, please, Kelly. I saw a new panelist join, is that uh, Tracy by chance? Okay. Uh, yes, it was, can you hear me? Oh, perfect, yes, Tracy. So can you see the screens okay? <laughs> no, now that I can hear you, but now my screen won't show. So <laughs> I'm blind looking at this because it says I can only view Kelly's screen and I can't, I can't share my screen so I can't see it. <laughs> Okay. Well, well, Tracy, if you have uh, if you have your presentation up in front of you on your your computer, uh, we're on the CDBG home competitive allocation slide. I can stop sharing, Tracy, and sharing. let you back in. Yeah, I'm afraid I'll miss it. So <laughs> I will just let me. Wait, which which slide are you on? Uh, it's not a slide 16. It's the CDBG home uh, competitive allocation slide. Here, go ahead and keep talking and I'll find it. And then um, I'll, I'll just jump in. Okay. Uh, the high level statistics are listed on the top there, just over $700,000 spent in the last fiscal year, um, impacting 29 households. Um, the home tenant-based rent assistance program is administered by our housing authority, and that's where the 29 households were assisted over four years. Um, at the end of the program, um, all um, tenant-based rental uh, units um, get converted over to our regular housing choice voucher program. And Tracy will talk a little bit more about the housing authority uh, going forward here. So we're at the housing authority slide, right? Nope, we're on uh, the successful living bullet point of your uh, CWG program. Okay, yep. Do you want me to go from here? Yes, please. <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, so our CDBG home funds, like I said, we report accomplishments in the year that they're completed. So we've spent more than, well, we spent that 731957 That includes prior years. That's what got spent in fiscal year 20, and those 57 beneficiaries are what projects got completed. So the, the bullets that you see here are all projects that were completed in fiscal year 20. So um, Jeff talked about the tenant-based rent assistance. We completed projects by successfully leaving the housing fellowship, serving persons with disabilities and for people under 60% of median income. 60 successful living and mayor's youth completed their projects of acquiring three properties to provide housing for 11 persons with disabilities. Shelter House acquired another home for permanent supportive housing and Habitat acquired land and constructed and sold three homes. Kelly, can you go ahead and move it? So are you on the housing authority? Yep. 
So I always want to remind people that the Iowa City Housing Authority is not just Iowa City. Our jurisdiction, jurisdiction includes three counties, Johnson, Iowa, and Washington counties. For Washington County, it's that, fourth north, that part of the county that's north of Highway 92. HUD also, we have to report to HUD on a calendar year, not a fiscal year. So when we report in our CAPER for year-end data, we're looking at CDBG and home programs that completed in fiscal year 20 and then calendar year 19 for the housing authority. So we're consistently reporting that year to year. So when you look at calendar year 2019 for the housing authority, we had 12, over 1,200 housing choice vouchers. We had 83 VASH vouchers that are for veterans. And those, about, those vouchers assisted over 1,300 households. We own and manage 81 public housing units and 10 affordable housing units. In fiscal year 21, you're going to see that we acquired five more additional public housing units in the Chauncey and six in Augusta Place. But since those weren't purchased until fiscal year 21, you'll see that in next year's report. What was great for us is that we awarded 78 new mainstream vouchers for persons or households who are chronically homeless with a disabling condition. We started leasing those in March of 2020. So once again, that gets reported in the calendar year 20. So it'll be in next year's report regarding beneficiaries. And then I always like to remind people with the housing authority, since there's so much misinformation about the housing authority and voucher holders, that 57% of our households are elderly or disabled. Out of those, out of the rest, like the 49% were working families, that less than 1% of assisted households report family investment program, basically welfare is their sole source of income. Now, a head of household can earn income and have a disabled spouse, and that household would be counted both as a working household and a disabled. So sometimes our numbers don't actually add up to 100%. That's some of the reason why. The last part of accomplishment data is our tax increment. Oh, Kelly, you can move to the tax increment financing. The next one slide. So due to either negotiations with our tax increment financing, our riverfront crossing requirements, or any type of local requirements, we have 99 units under compliance in fiscal year 20. So for tax increment financing, 25 units are under compliance, one underway. Um, tax increment financing is a negotiated deal. Um, so in early, when you're starting to do TIF, we did approve 12 units. They were set at 120% um, of home fair market rent. One of the next projects were 12 units, and where rent was based on 40% of median income where the developer plays utilities. Um, the remaining two are set at the home fair market rent. There's a local requirement, if you remember, for the rise at 435 Lynn Street. Due to us them purchasing the units um, for that point on, they had to provide 33 units for those under 80% rented at the home fair market rent. That was before TIF or Riverfront Crossings, but it was a local requirement. And then the Riverfront Crossings affordable housing requirement that we set has contributed 41 units under compliance period. And then you don't always have, you either have to do on-site units or fee in lieu. So 756,244 has been received for payment in lieu. Now these funds can only be used in the Riverfront Crossings District. And some background regarding the Riverfront Crossings affordable housing requirement. Uh, before that was enacted, there was a committee of affordable housing advocates, lenders, developers that worked for about a year and a half on a policy. Um, to develop and that set the, the fee and mood that set the affordable housing requirement. So in the Riverfront Crossing District, what makes us unique and what we can do, why we can have this requirement is that developers choose to get this rezoning. And if they choose to get rezone their property from CB10 or whatever their commercial zone in was in the commercial in the Riverfront Crossing District, 
In exchange to get increased density and height, they have to provide affordable housing. So somebody technically could develop in riverfront crossings under the old zoning, and they don't need to provide affordable housing. However, once they decide to get that rezoning, then that, that requirement kicks in. Uh, Kelly, you can go to the next one. So I put, so this is a pie chart of funds spent by category, and I think it's interesting to see. So when you include the housing authority and all of our sources, you see more than 90, I think about 95% went for rental housing and 5% went with owner occupied. Um, so you can see rent subsidies, the housing authority took up the, the lion's share of our pie chart along with rental new construction. That had mostly to deal with our two LIHTC projects that became online in fiscal year 20. Kelly, can you go to the next one? So when you go to the next pie chart, um, it, it changes quite a bit because you, you have those rent subsidies taken out from the housing authority. You still see rental new construction and rental acquisition. Basically, you have about a 75-25 split. So 75% for rental housing, about 25% um, for owner-occupied housing. So this is where our, we're spending our funds locally and what the categories we're spending our funding on. Can you go to the next one, Kelly? So funds that are carried over next year. So our opportunity has 595,000 that'll be converted to next year. We are looking at a property to acquire. It won't take the full 595,000, but we are actively working with landowners to purchase property. Our low income housing tax credits we will combine our fiscal year 20 remaining funds with our fiscal year 21. So we'll go into the next fiscal year 21 LIHTC funding round with 380,000. We've accumulated those 756,000 for fee and lieu in the riverfront crossing. And then our, our housing authority has 420,000 available for the development or acquisition of low income replacement housing units. So we have approximately 1.9 million available that we goes into fiscal year 21 for more affordable housing opportunities. Um, Kelly, we can go to the next one. So what you'll see our focus in fiscal year 21 being is we're going to continue our COVID housing relief efforts with community crisis service shelter as a center for worker justice. We're just notified that we're, well, later on this agenda, you're going to see how our second wave, the 390,000 that we just got allocated through the state will join the funds that we already have available for our programs with community. Um, but we also just were notified of a third round that we'll receive directly from HUD again for, I believe, $424,000. We'll have to discuss how those funds are, are going to be administered. At some point, both the city and our, our funding partners, we have to look at staff capacity. It's quite a bit of funds. So while we might have difficulty administering all these funds, also our local nonprofits are receiving federal state months as well, along with increased need. So capacity may become an issue. To recognize that, HUD has allowed us to spend the funds up to three years to get a much long range view of the problem and where we need to put our resources. So the fiscal year 21 or the, that second, that round two and three will allow us increased time to spend it and to see where, where the needs develop. Um, we'll talk about that second round later. It's uh, an agenda on your, on your council agenda. Um, the second focus will be regulatory changes, which is extremely important. Like I said, we subsidize about 10% of the rental market. That means 90% of the rental market is private market. And so what we can do to encourage the private sector 
to increase density and diversity of housing in every neighborhood um, will help us with our affordable housing goals. So three items that we're working on is adopting and implementing the South District form-based codes. These are codes that we will use, that concept will be used in future rezonings of outlying areas. We're gonna review our policies. We've, we've taken input from the Home Builders Association and the Affordable Homes Coalition. We're currently reviewing that input and seeing what changes can be made to our codes. And we'll, within the next few months, we'll initiate a comprehensive plan amendment, which increases density and diversity in all our existing single family residential zones. So that's what our urban planning department will be working on extensively within fiscal year 21. And Kelly, you can go to the last slide. That's pretty much a summary, and I'm pretty sure Jeff probably did an excellent job of the slides that I missed. <laughs> but if you have any questions, I can answer them. Tracy, I'm wondering if you have a sense of how Iowa City compares to other communities when you kind of put everything together in this sort of overview. Most entitlement cities, and I mean cities with more than 50,000, they do have access to, they might not, their housing authority might not be part of the city. That's probably unique for a lot of cities. Um, usually housing authorities are standalone agencies with the county or with a multi-county jurisdiction. But from what I hear from other entitlement cities, the amount of funds that we spend outside our federal funds, whether they be vouchers or community development, community, community development block grant or home funds is unique. So I, th I think we spend and we allocate more funds than a lot of other Iowa entitlement cities. Tracy, you, you said that there is more money is coming, which is great news that a lot of people will be like receiving help because we know the need is great on this coming. Right now we're being seeing the needs. But you talk about, you brought like really a good point about staffing capacity. What else can we do to make the fund that the city have out there more accessible to the people? Is there is any way the city can give more money to like a number of organizations to hire in person, uh, somebody who can meet people in person, at least one person. I know that the coronavirus and everything, all these challenges, but in the same time, uh, like low-income people tend to do better with in person. You know, like, I mean, our applications or, uh, you know, just like calling and just if they get a hold of somebody or leaving a message and uh, when they call back, the agency call back, most likely maybe those people either are working or they did not hear the phone and they will miss that phone call, you know, and it will be just like back and forth. And this way, I don't think our money is really accessible. How can we just like really uh, make it easy for those agencies to make it accessible to the people if can we can allocate more money for them to hire in person or what do you think? I, I guess like ideas. Yeah, we can encourage them. When we get the money, we, we, we definitely work with our community partners. The, our community partners like Shelter House, Center for Worker Justice, um, all three of them. When we reward money, it's usually a one-time assistance or it's a, it's a grant. We, 
agencies have to determine if they can hire staff that might not go past that grant. And so each agency has to determine if they're going to add staff. And so we typically don't require them because the amount of admin we're paying with these contracts is only 10% or less of the contract. So it's up to the agency to decide if they're going to hire additional staff or if they're going to hire some part-time staff just for this grant and then that person, that position is eliminated or the position ends at the end when they when they stop the grant. So that's something we've always let the, the agency decide. Um, that's why I'm saying, now I, think what, I'm not, yeah. I know the 10% and I know it's up to the agents and everything, but I'm saying now to the city, I'm asking the city, how can we make this accessible with these challenges that happening with the coronavirus and the great to the community? Can the city allocate separate money to hire a temporary staff to meet people in person? I'm not talking about to the agency, I'm talking now to the city. I think that's, if I could jump in, I think that's probably, you know, within your discretion at the, uh, with, with your um, opportunity fund. Your opportunity fund was, designed for for that type of uh, that type of assistance so if you felt like that was a need we could um, approach our partner agencies and and uh, and see if um, uh, that would be of interest to them basically what you're doing is you're increasing that admin fee with with local funds so instead of the 10 percent federal they might get 10 percent federal and another 10 or 15 percent local on top of that um, oh. But yeah, that's that's probably you know that that opportunity fund was was meant for, you know, uh, anything that may come up throughout the year that's unplanned. I I think we need to think about that councils because you know I, I she just give us the update of the numbers. We still have money out there, twenty percent out of two something hundred, and uh, the challenge is 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 there. And uh, there is great needs in the community. And I guess we have this money out there so we can spend them. You know, we, we don't want to save them. <laughs> we need people to use it. And, you know, it is, we, we need to figure out how can we help the nonprofit organizations uh, so they can, uh, also they have another work. Those nonprofit organizations, it's not designed only to do this. They have a lot of work to do in the community beside that. So let us think about a way to like make this accessible to a lot of people. Hey, Tracy, I have a question related to, um, are, is your department getting a lot of calls directly about housing needs, um, if, whether it's affordable housing or Rental assistance, is your department directly getting calls? I, I know community development is not because when we advertise so many of the programs, the advertising directs them directly to community crisis services. Um, I can check with the housing authority because usually people start with the housing authority um, for assistance, but I think all the advertisements that we sent out either put you directly in contact with Shelter House, Center for Worker Justice, or Crisis community so we've not been getting a lot of calls in NDS but I can check with the housing authority with the housing authority I know there um, we had some increased vouchers which was great but of course it's for multiple counties beyond just Johnson County I'm assuming that all of those vouchers have been called for 
or do you know that information? My the housing have a one year or two year, like almost two year waiting list. Yeah. Period. You know, if you apply today, you will get it after two years, I guess. Yeah. There is a lot of needs and a lot of people waiting on the waiting list. Mm -hmm. So one of the one of the things that I was uh, trying to um, drive at is uh, one is that need, and and that is showing the need with the waiting list. Um, if we were to do some type of a large scale project with affordable housing, are are there any ideas, and maybe not now, you don't have to share, but would be interested to hear any ideas that um, you've heard done in other cities. Um, we know that it'd be cheaper if we use existing stock um, or whether it's cheaper or not, um, I think it's more climate friendly if we're using existing stock. Um, but I guess the council has, you know, stated that we want to plan uh, affordable housing plan and want to be aggressive. And so um, want to, if there's any ideas for council, we, I certainly would entertain it. And it doesn't have to be done today. I think the purpose of today was to just give us like information about where we are. And I, I, I want to commend uh, you and your staff for all of the programs that you present, presented today. So we're doing some great things um, and I think we should be proud of that. And we should not run away in, from acknowledging we have a lot more to do. So um, yeah, I, I, I think- That's true. Yeah, I, I think if we can, um, for me personally, just marinate on the information for today and then I hope to be dreaming tomorrow about other opportunities that we can have um, within our community. I guess. To, oh. Go ahead, Moss. No, go ahead, Billy. Oh, I, I just wanted also to uh, echo that and, and just thank Tracy and her staff for uh, compiling this uh, report. You, you, uh, you and your department have obviously been very busy and uh, recently there have been public comments inferring that we haven't put much effort into helping with housing for the low to moderate income members of our community. Uh, in the past few years, I believe that we have taken some major steps towards addressing housing insecurity uh, by developing plans and authorizing funds, a lot of funds. Uh, this report uh, documents those efforts, but uh, just side note, I was especially pleased uh, to see the report regarding the South District uh, duplex project. Uh, I have supported plans for this project uh, since I first heard about it, and I was so impressed with the figure quoted uh, for the monthly cost to the homes uh, for mortgage, tax, and insurance. Um, as Jeff said, it's a very, very successful uh, story uh, because that'll certainly uh, be helpful economically for those individuals that are able to uh, buy those uh, duplexes. And, and I hope that we will have the opportunity to continue uh, with that project so that other individuals uh, can also realize the dream of, of home ownership. I think it's a great project. Okay, Jeff, I just want to conclude what I proposed. Uh, I see nobody talk about it, but I'm going to ask, is that means we are inviting the nonprofit organization to apply for, if they need, if they need a position to apply for that grant, uh, to apply to the, what it called, the opportunity? 
Well, I think what would happen if there's a majority of council that wants us to, to do that, we would just contact the three providers that we're working with and ask what type of assistance that they would need uh, in order to expand the availability of, of their staff. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't think it would be necessarily an, uh, an application period. It would just be more direct outreach from our uh, from from City Hall here to those three providers to, to say what would be helpful and then we would cobble together a proposal based on the, the needs of those individual agencies. Okay, so I really propose this to our my fellow council members and this is there is a great need. So I being first hand experience, I being seeing this, I know the limited capacity of the number of other organization. And I know that, you know, this is going to be temporary. It's not like something, hopefully, hopefully, it's a temporary situation and it will go away. Uh, I really propose that if we can help, uh, you know, or give direction to the city managers and Tracy to reach out to those community and ask them those questions if they need help. Um, I. I I agree that we really need to build up capacity and sort of I apologize also for my picture being off and in. I had to just move into City Hall from my home because we lost our internet speaking of um, speaking of challenges with Zoom. Um, as, but I, it seems to me that the best way to ramp it up right now, whether it's someone within the city or using the opportunity funds to offer extra funds to our partners would be to increase the capacity by allowing at least um, one extra staff, if not more, to be hired. I, I think that those three agencies that we were talking about, uh, I don't see them as being shy uh, for asking uh, for assistance and, and knowing what kinds of assistance they need. And I think they would be honest and up, upfront about it. And I, I would be okay with that. I think during this time, we've seen maybe, an, well, we have seen a lot of challenges and more work on all agencies, um, even if they're, some of their programming is down. I think um, the workload has been increased in other ways with in, in been stressful for people. So um, I would be totally willing to, to um, ask staff to just inquire what the needs might be and get back to council about it. I'm fine with that. I think we need. I think we need to look at it obviously as as one position, um, and clearly that it's set up as a temporary position, um, and somebody who's familiar with all the agencies, um, and then figure out you know who if they're reporting to the city or you know community or whoever. Um, but if they are having trouble actually, you know, allocating the dollars and getting the money out, then I don't have a problem with doing a temporary uh, funding so that they can have some extra capacity in their staffing. Yeah, that seems like- You're talking about the agencies themselves hiring somebody, correct? That would be my thought, yes. And so that it's a, clearly a temporary position simply to help with the allocation of these funds for COVID. We'll do that. We'll just re we'll reach out to the three agencies and uh, and and kind of do a needs assessment with them when it comes to uh, administering these programs, and then we'll uh, we'll, we'll report back to you um, on what what we find and and hopefully with a recommendation. 
if I could go back, Tracy, you've got a question. Um, and one, I just, um, a couple, I guess a couple comments. Pauline, thank you for your comments about, you know, we have been spending a lot of money and a lot of people in the community have no clue how much we really have been doing. I mean, we've completed basically a, a 15 point um, affordable housing plan that I don't remember how many years ago we put that in place, but we've accomplished an awful lot with getting that done. And certainly it's now, you know, time to, to develop a new one as we move forward and build upon what we've already done. And as Pauline said, we, we've spent a lot of money and kudos to staff for helping us figure out how to leverage the money that we have uh, with LIHTC projects and, and IFA funding, et cetera. Um, I mean, for us to have put in roughly a million and, and have do, uh, sent out about 12, over 12 million this past year is, is pretty phenomenal. Um, so I really appreciate that. And to you, Tracy and your staff, yeah, kudos on this report. In the 10 and a half years I've been on council, this is by far the most kind of comprehensive, all in one place, um, you know, table so you can really see what's what we've done and what kind of funding streams they fall under, et cetera. So it, it's, it's incredibly good. My one question is, um, as we look at uh, Shelter House's new project, kind of cross park place number two, we have done project-based vouchers um, in the first cross park place. And I assume that we're going to be wanting to do that same thing in the second one. Do we have enough project-based vouchers? And if, and if not, how is that going to impact the vouchers we have? Or can we get additional project-based vouchers? Back in 2018, when we approved the project-based vouchers, it wasn't, we just didn't approve project-based vouchers for Cross Park Place. We set aside 5% of the vouchers in our program to be used as project-based for these types of projects. Basically, if you were chronically homeless with a saline condition, so yes, we have enough vouchers for um, the new Cross Park Place. I think there are going to be 36 units. So we council doesn't need to do anything. We will, I believe we just allocate those with, um, we send, I talked to Steve, but I'm pretty sure we just communicate directly with HUD. If anything, we might just have to get a resolution from you. But I think since we've already set that set aside, um, they'll be granted those vouchers. On those mainstream vouchers, you're gonna see all those mainstream vouchers of 78 be used, utilized in Iowa City because they're for a very specific population. It's for people who are chronically homeless with a disabling condition and permanent supportive housing. Basically, it's shelter house properties in Iowa City. So you're going to see, uh, unless we create some new units outside of Iowa City, the majority, probably all of them being utilized in Iowa City. My question about LIHTC, Tracy, is the LIHTC is 13 years affordability? Sorry, what was that? LIHTC programs. Is oh, the affordability a, period? Yes. It's essentially 30 years. It's technically for 15 years, and then most are situated where they re-up for another 15 years based on their application. So, yes, most LIHTC projects are 30-year compliance periods. That, that said, oftentimes they will be affordable for longer than that. You know, for example, with Delray, and that being owned uh, in the future by the by the housing fellowship, you know their mission is to provide affordable housing. So presumably, um, they are going to hold that beyond the compliance period, 
or if they decide to sell it, um, those proceeds would get reinvested into um, other affordable housing. So uh, a, a lot of it depends on on who you're partnering with um, on those programs, but the minimum is going to be that that 30 year period. Oh, that sounds good. I think I think what staff presented is really remarkable. And at the same time, I think that as, as we gather our, our forces and whoever decides to really work on affordable housing going forward of, of my colleagues, um, I think we should continue to think of, uh, essentially to think big, to think there, the need, the need we, continues to be great. There, there are large numbers of people who are spending way, way too much of their income on housing. That's not going to go away in addition to COVID and everything else. Um, it's tremendous that we're getting the CARES Act funds and, and all these CD, CDBG funds. Uh, but, I, but you know, we've been able to leverage funds. We have the new partnership with Habitat for Humanity. Um, I just, let's, you know, we, some years ago, we started, the council and the city started at a much lower base. We're starting at a higher one now. And I just suggest that we set our sights um, as high as we can, even considering our fiscal constraints. I really want to echo what uh, yeah, Jenna said, but first, really, um, there is many things has been done. Thank you to the staff. Thank you to everyone who really, like, uh, you know, put those together. And now we are, uh, as Laura said in the beginning, she was asking what the how the city is doing comparing to other city. I think we are doing much better and we are in the head of the game. But as the mayor said, there is a lot of work need to be done. And back to Yenis, we really need aggressive plan for uh, you know affordable housing. Or that's Bruce said that I guess. And Yenis also said we need something really, you know. Uh, and I think uh, we we have uh, today. We are not going to say what we're going to do because we don't have any experience to say. Okay, well the plan for affordable housing will be one and two and three. We don't. I don't have that experience. But I think as all of us agree that we need to have uh, aggressive, strong plan for affordable housing to put in place, I think so. our next step will be just like inviting the people who really working on affordable housing, whether it's like housing trust fund or affordable housing coalition, housing fellowship or habitat. Those the people who are really, you know, show a lot of uh, uh, progress in working on affordable housing. Uh, I think we just need to do that. And I, and I say that I would like to be on the affordable on the housing committee. You have an echo, undoubtedly. <laughs> I guess it's coming from Tracy somehow. <laughs> but uh, it is yeah, that's what I was trying to say uh, when we put those committees. I don't know do you guys want to do it now or not, but you know, um, I, I have very um, interesting on being on the affordable housing committee that we need. I don't know if that committee will be the committee who was supposed to put the plan together with the staff, or this is just like uh, we invite people to come up with a plan. I, I don't know how we can do it, but all of us now, I think, agree that we need a plan affordable housing. I don't know if Councilor Burgess wants to say anything, um, but I, I but I did want to maybe just quickly echo a part of the hope that I have for us today uh, with the Black Lives Matter um, is to kind of, well, actually with this one right here, 
is to talk about that plan and how it, the initial process of bringing people together that will create that plan. Uh, does staff want to, um, you know, kind of start the initiation? Do we bring in uh, part community partners, which I think would be very valuable um, to have some experts that deal with housing? Um, they're the ones that are dealing, you know, hands day to day. Um, landlords definitely have some um, not-for-profits like the Affordable Housing um, Trust Fund, as well as um, Shelter House. Many, many different businesses could contribute to this uh, conversation. And just like we're doing these uh, meeting in the parks, which hopefully it will not be total fall weather, <laughs> um, maybe there is an opportunity for maybe there to be some type of a um, brainstorming of imagining what housing opportunities could be. This could be um, people submitting some things that they've learned from other communities. Um, so I would at least like to start that conversation and definitely include uh, staff um, thoughts, um, entertain and welcome your thoughts as well. I mean, I think there's an enormous brain trust in our community with the with the nonprofits and staff and others. There's, um, we have we have the ability to to put the heads, have everybody sit down at the table, um, and come up with a plan. I think it's really important as we move forward that one whoever's involved looks at our previous plan that we're just finishing up because. That 15 step plan was pretty comprehensive and accomplished an awful lot. And we need to make sure that what we're doing is building on that. And, you know, some of those may be things that we, you know, are continuing to do. So it, it, the next one, while, you know, I agree that, you know, we want to be as bold as we can, um, when you're, like Janice said, when you're already starting from higher level, you know, you, you've got to look at where you go from there. And I don't recall who was involved in developing that last one. I think it was primarily staff, um, but I would certainly, you know, agree that, you know, the Affordable Housing Coalition, Housing Fellowship, et cetera, um, would be, you know, good people to include in that. But I think it's really important that the people that sit down at that table to try and work on that are people that do have some expertise in housing. Um, otherwise, I think the idea is let's throw money at it, let's throw money at it. But what we need to do is make sure that the money that we're putting in there is used as efficiently as possible so we get the biggest bang for our buck. So um, I think we just really need to make sure we've got a lot of experts in housing at the table. I agree with Susan. And I think it's it's very important that we, we build on what, what we've done in the past and, and not totally reinvent the wheel as such because those that 15-step uh, plan we had accomplished a lot. So I think uh, we do need to build on that and we uh, do need to utilize our resources from the community. And I see our, our role as the policymakers, I get really excited about the regulatory changes that, that Tracy mentioned, those things that we still have in the works that are upcoming very soon. The South District form-based code um, and talking about the, the other sort of regulatory changes that, that can be maybe hard to quantify exactly how they impact in terms of dollars, the affordable housing landscape in our community. But we know that long-term providing 
um, alternatives for allowing for more affordable housing, for having density requirements changing. I mean, these things that we're talking about with the comprehensive plan amendment and the form-based code in particular, I think that's, you know, that's kind of our expertise here on council that I get really excited about. So I think we've got a great um, whole group of people, the community experts, the staff experts, and, and ICR role is really focusing on that policy part to bring it all together. I'm curious to know uh, what are next steps for, what are people thinking are the next steps? Mayor, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, ultimately this is a, this is a council driven initiative, but um, I, I would be really interested in trying to uh, work with Tracy and her team and, and sketch out a, um, a preliminary public input um, a plan um, and, and really get, get started with that. I think you all said it really well. Let's, let's uh, find a way to, to talk with the uh, providers in the community. Uh, that know this issue better than anybody and and uh, get some of those ideas on the table. And then after that process is complete, I think there'll be a clearer picture forward on, on um, uh, what we need to do as a city to, to put together a plan. So Tracy and I and, and her staff could, could sketch that out for you. And if you're comfortable with the process we lay out, uh, we could get going uh, yet this fall. Mm -hmm. I personally, I think um, that would be a great next step just to connect with community providers and um, bring something back to council. Agreed. Agreed. All right, I'm seeing some not enough heads. So, all right. All right, well, anything else for Tracy? Thanks for the presentation. Thank you very much, Tracy. I didn't debate whether to come back or let Jeff just let Jeff handle the rest of it. <laughs> Good call, Tracy. Good call. <laughs> you did a great job. Yes, yes, yes. Well, all right. Well, thank you again. And we're going to continue with our agenda for today and uh, COVID-19 updates. Um, I did want to just make mention that on Friday, I um, extended the mask mandate and that is in effect, um, it was to expire on the 15th today. So on Friday, uh, that has been extended until November. Um, and so um, thanks to everybody out there that are wearing the mask. Um, it is not just symbolic. It really is saving lives and decreasing the risk of another person contacting COVID. So thanks to everybody that has really uh, participated in um, being an active um, player, very conscientious of remembering to take your mask out the house. I know sometimes um, you can jump out the car and start walking into a business and get halfway there and think, oh my God, you know, uh, I need a mask. So thanks uh, for every, to everyone for adjusting. Um, I think we're also, we seem to be all about plans right now. I think we're going to need um, to continue to have a plan going forward. The governor just, the governor's office just announced that they're going to lift the, uh, the restrictions on uh, bars in four of the six counties. So not in Story County and not in Johnson County yet, but the other four counties starting tomorrow evening. Uh, so, I mean, I, 
I don't know how long the governor's going to keep the restrictions on here. And so we need to work very closely with um, with the community, with the with bar owners, with student organizations, with the university, with everyone to make sure we have a viable plan going forward. The governor's plan for here does expire on the 20th, so that's only five days away. So, um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to take a guess at what could happen, but um, our numbers apparently um, are very concerning to her as they are to us. And so um, we'll have to wait five days from now to see what happens, if she's going to extend it or if she's going to end it. Uh, one thing, one thing I would mention on COVID, uh, since it's there's so much need for education among ourselves and everyone on it, uh, even at this stage, I, I ran across an article by Ed Yong in the Atlantic. It's called "America Is Trapped in a Pandemic Spiral," and I felt it uh, captured the you know the complexities of the issues we're facing in terms of COVID. And uh, you know, trying to look forward into, you know, what needs to be done to address the situation we're in at the moment. But I found it to be as comprehensive as anything I've I've come across in terms of trying to summarize uh, the challenges you know we face moving forward. Mayor, can I offer two COVID-related uh, topics real quick? Yes, please. Um, one is um, the next round of CDBG funds that, that Tracy alluded to. Uh, we don't have um, uh, all the communication we need to from HUD, but we do think we'll be receiving $424,000 more in CDBG funds. And um, I would like um, to begin to look at a CDBG business support uh, program um, we do some CDBG business support that you may be familiar with, with our regular annual entitlement funds. But with the first two um, allocations going to nonprofits and housing programs, and at least for the time being, feeling, feeling pretty good about the fund balances that we have there and the additional spending authority you gave me uh, on, the, on the local side, I think it would be good for us to look at a small business support program uh, that, that targets um, Income qualified business owners in Iowa City, and it'll take a little bit of a little bit of time for us to research some of those programs that are uh, other cities have have deployed with their CDBG funds. But um, before we get started on that at a staff level, I'd like to see if there's council concurrence at least uh, uh, if uh, uh, in allowing staff to to investigate and, and share with you what that program may look like. Doesn't mean that you have to follow through with it. We could clearly put more money into the, the, the housing programs that we have uh, stood up for COVID. But um, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to hear council's thoughts uh, real briefly on, on whether we should be looking at a, a business support program. I would like to see staff look into it. I think what we all need to remember is when those businesses fold, those are employees that now lo no longer have jobs and can no longer pay their rent or their mortgage. So while it's not direct rent or mortgage assistance. It really can be helping people continue to pay their rent and mortgage because they continue to have a job. So I would be interested in at least seeing what that would look like. Do you mean the business who cannot apply for the all the money out there or yes, this is uh, which one? 
Correct. So um, we would just like we have to kind of think about all the rules and regulations for the um, the housing programs. We'd have to think about that for the business program. So you may be a lower priority if you've already received the uh, payroll protection loans from the federal government. But we know that a lot of those uh, small businesses especially did not receive any federal assistance. So my guess would be that we would um, uh, prioritize uh, those those um, small businesses. And, and as I mentioned before, um, because of the nature of the source of the fund, CDBG, there's probably going to be some uh, type of uh, income uh, qualifications for the owners or employees of the uh, of the business that's receiving assistance. Jeff, but that's federal funds that offer the application of benefits. So we couldn't assist them if they've gotten money through the PPE for the same type of expense. Yeah. Thanks, Tracy. But Jeff, could that include such things as like, I know there are some hair salons that uh, have been um, uh, traumatized by the COVID. They, they are following the strict guidelines and only have one customer at a time, whereas maybe they had three chairs going with, with three customers in at one time. So would something like that, a business like that, be considered um, the small business you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, again, we have to do a little bit of homework on our end to... Uh, figure out what makes sense but uh you know th thankfully there are cities that that have already used covid cdbg um for these types of programs so we can we can borrow from them and see what works best here mm -hmm. and uh also is this going to be like for payroll or you 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 did not have any idea yet you just gathering information as yeah we I, we I just want to make sure that the, the concept itself isn't isn't going to be kind of dead on arrival, if you will, that if you felt really strongly that the, the housing programs need all the money that we can get, then then we would just continue down that path. But um, I like to invest some staff time in exploring the business side of things. And if at the end of the day, again, we decide that that's not the best use of the funds, it's okay. Um, it's just a, kind of more of an exploratory process for staff. Yeah, and I, is I this some that and um... Just also, it may be implicit in the idea of small business, but I would add local, locally owned as well. Yep. And it would be something like direct, oh, you, you said you don't have details, but I'm just saying that, is this something direct people can apply to the city or it be housing somewhere else and I don't know. Yeah, but we'd have to think through that. It, it would probably be some competitive grant program. Um, and whether we administer it or look for a partner to, to administer it, I, I don't know yet. I, mean, I, think, I think a lot of the hospitality industry, particularly restaurants and stuff, they're just are, I don't know how many of them are gonna survive and they do employ a lot of people if we, if we can't give them a little bit of hand up because if we really want them to continue to follow distancing guidelines and we need them to, um, they really can't make ends meet right now. Even customers <laughs> I appreciate that. We'll 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 sketch something out and then review it with you at a future work session. Um, the other topic that I just want to let you know that staff is starting to think about, um, and, and you can direct us any way you want in the future, is we need to anticipate that day when when water shutoffs will resume. And uh, I don't say that as I anticipate that happening anytime soon. Um, uh, I don't. I don't believe that would be your your intention to resume that in 2020 even. 
Um, but we need to plan for that day because we don't want to come to that day, you know, whether that's sometime in, uh, you know, next spring and have a, have a huge backlog of, of people that are getting shut off notices. We want to try to bring those people and, and get them, get them paid, uh, before that date hits. So, um, similar to the past conversation, what I'd like to do is spend some, some staff time, uh, looking at a, uh, utility relief program. And it would be tied to a it would be tied to a, um, a kind of a, a payment plan of sorts. So we would notify those accounts that are past due, and we have over 800 accounts that are past due right now, um, and let them know that you know we'd like them to to come on a payment plan uh, with us, and then we'd have to figure out how this all works. But based on their own financial situation. Um, all or a part of that uh, past due amount could be forgiven with a loan to the city. Um, again, depending on on their on their situation, so we would um, have to think about how to structure that program. But um, in my mind, I'm thinking that sometime this fall we start to engage those 800 accounts um, with the with the thought that we're going to resume shutoffs sometime maybe uh, early next spring. Again, you all have to make that, that call, but that gives us four, five, six months to begin to work with them. And even if they're not paid off by that date, if they're active in that plan with us and showing good faith to try to catch up, then we're not gonna have this uh, situation where we're, we're issuing 800 or 1,000 shutoff notices, which, which would be a, a terrible idea. So just trying to get in front of that. Again, it's something that we would come back to you um, on uh, to make sure you're comfortable with the approach that we're taking. Um, but if you have if you have thoughts on how we should do that, um, you know, in the next couple of work sessions under this topic, it'd be helpful to hear those. But Jeff, I really believe that we don't have to do anything right now. I understand that you are not doing it now, but. You know, it's really sad to see that we have 800 people passed to you and still we have money out there. Uh, is there is any way the city can reach out to those people and refer them to where they can get help? There is many people helping on water right now and utility bills. So uh, I, I think they just maybe those people they don't know. Uh, or, uh, you know, I don't know how can, when you send the bill, is there is a way you can put a flow? there or you can put something on the envelope saying that uh, you are late please contact those people for help so you know those people can apply for the money that we have it out there yeah it's a very very good point I think we would we would roll that into whatever plan we produce I just haven't we haven't given it much thought um, but but you're, you're right um, leaning on those existing programs would be critical and making sure that um, our customers are taking full advantage of those programs would be a top priority. I, I, I want to, uh, oh, sorry. Um, I have one question so that I understand this. So what you're proposing is that essentially um, no one would essentially be cut off. I mean, that's, that's kind of the goal that no one, no one's water would be cut off. There would be, some type of a resolution to keep them going. Um, what I do know is that um, I, for whatever reason myself, COVID has been a, a busy time or just this entire year. 
And I've, I've kind of had some bills. Normally I pay my bills right on time, right? And so then uh, sometimes the it gets like on the shelf and then by the time I get to it, it's past two, you know? And so I do know that there are some people out there that may be in that same boat where if they got that shutoff notice, they'll run and pay the bill, right? Or, or they'll call. So I, I think what my preference would be definitely right now because COVID is gonna be um, here for a while and the imp implications from COVID reduced income and all types of, th of things are gonna be here for a while. So what I would like to see personally is that, yes, if we do have that you know, shut off notice, go out there or something like that, like your balance too, maybe it's just no one goes, it's just on the, you know, when you see that um, pass due stamp on that bill, um, you know, shut off at risk or whatever the case may be, we'll get those calls into City Hall for those payments. So I, I just wanted to, you know, kind of put my two cents in there where if, if people get that notice that, you know, it's due, then some people, um, whether they're um, just kind of had it on the shelf and forgot to pay it, now, you know, they see it, they're like running to, to pay their bill. Um, those individuals will come forth and pay. And then for individuals that get the letter that Mayor Pro Tem just mentioned, you know, there are resources out there if you can't afford it, then those individuals have an opportunity to find resolution and not have their water off. I, I really don't agree with you, Meyer. How many people like you did not bathe because they didn't get out to it? That's gonna be a few, yeah. few dozen of people. I don't think the 800 people will be uh, like uh, 100 out of them just like you did not get to the bill. Those people, they did not pay. And this is, I don't think the city noticed uh, something like this happening before. This is maybe because of this crisis, all this is start happening. I, I think if we send them shut off notice, we, we really scare those people and we don't need to do that. We, we can tell them about the resources if it's somebody like you receive that, most likely they are not going to use it. And that's what remind them, oh, you need to pay. And if uh, somebody like a low income person receives that and uh, they was very exciting, there is help out there, they never knew about it, they will go on and, and, and do it. But right now I think we don't have to speak about shut up. To be honest with you, why in the world? We shut up people water, even if there is no COVID. This is like really not supposed to be the value of the city. We, we need to be better than that. Uh, I just think like right now, please no shut up at all. You know, you know, just like let us just put this idea away right now, especially and think about how can we refer those people so they can pay. There is money out there and people can pay. So we're about to run into winter, whether we like it or not. And that's that's not the time to shut off anything. Yeah, Mayor Pro Tem, and that's that's the that's the approach that we're contemplating at the staff level. Is is again, we're not um, we're not going to hold a date over anybody's head because we haven't set a date. But we do feel like we need to start connecting people with resources, making sure that they can get on a payment plan. Because with each passing month, that past due amount just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And we need to we need to figure out a way to to bridge that gap. So whenever that date comes, be it six months or six years, <laughs> that that amount is a manageable amount. So um, again, we won't we won't do anything without talking with you all first and making sure you're comfortable with it. I'm just kind of letting you know that 
that that planning is going to be important this fall. Yeah, and one more COVID challenge that we may all face is if the Big Ten decides to resume football play this fall. I think we will likely know that within the next within the next day or two if they're going to do something like an, an eight game season. Um, but that could have impacts both good and difficult on the town and we'll have to think carefully about that. I was thinking the same thing, Janet. Depends on on whether they uh, do the open stadium and, and actually have um, uh, fans in the stadium, or if they just do the football game like like some schools are doing. So you're you're exactly right. That's a very big concern. Yes. All right. Anything else there? All right. We're going to move on to continuing our discussion on Black Lives Matter movement and systemic racism. And um, I did want to refer to IP4 um, from the, actually it's from the September 10th information packet. And I don't know if anyone has anything that they wanted to just maybe open up with, but um, I think it might be helpful if we just kind of look at this and go through it a little bit. Are people okay with that? I should have asked um, Kelly to <laughs> post it. <laughs> Maybe in the future we'll just have a standing order to have it available to kind of just throw it up on screen share. Do you, do you want me to grab that and? Actually, I think, I, I think I'm sharing my screen. Okay. Yep. All right. So, Mayor, on that first item, um, you have uh, the council's first listening post is tomorrow at Mercer Park at 530. And I just wanted to uh, make sure that uh, um, we're, everybody has the same understanding on, on kind of what to expect. And that, that includes council staff and the invited guests um, that, that, we've all, that, that we're bringing in uh, to, go, to go with the theme. So um, what I was thinking is that um, the, the three council members that are hosting these would offer a welcome to the, to the audience and, and just generally speak about the, the, the process that you've set forth for this plan to restructure uh, towards community policing. And then again, each night has a has a theme, and uh, Kelly's been working hard to to get some of the uh, service providers in the community um, to attend these and and share their perspectives as well. So, I, I would um, recommend that council then give um, the invited uh, service providers an opportunity just to talk a little bit about their field. Uh, I, I think tomorrow it's uh, you know, maybe mental health and addiction um, crisis. Um, let them kind of just uh, uh, share their thoughts on on um, uh, those topics and and share some perspective on how they work with law enforcement now and perhaps um, you know any ideas that they may have going forward to strengthen those relationships and then and then of course um, you, you know uh, make uh, make comment available to anybody from the public that comes as well. Um, whether it's related to the theme or not. I think that's important. There's going to be people that have ideas that maybe aren't tied to that theme that we certainly need to 
uh, welcome at those uh, at, at, at those meetings as well. So I'm really asking this because we've gotten a few questions from the nonprofit providers uh, on, on what they're gonna be asked to do or say at these. And I just wanna make sure that we're giving them the right guidance. Uh, has the um, community crisis and uh, food bank been invited? Yeah, Kelly, maybe you could jump on here and and help us with who's uh, who's confirmed for. And and, and and I guess the reason I asked that was because Raneem has sent um, something in relationship to. Um, um, Kind of the uh, MCOs, the mobile outreach counselors, is what I think is the kind of the relational thing that um, was in the information that she sent. And so I just wondered if community would be there because they actually have yeah. that model already um, de deployed and they've had that model deployed. Um, I want to say uh, definitely 20. Um, 2015, but potentially even much earlier than that. Um, so I, I did send out um, for this, this first, it looks like um, mobile crisis outreach and community. So Becky Reedus is going to be there and then Prelude, um, Ron Berg is going to be there for tomorrow's listening post. Um, and then the, do you want to know all of the ones that I have confirmed so far? At least for me, I just wanted to know if they, were, they would be there. I mean, theirs is, um, I don't want to use the word small scale by any means, but um, there is a, a model that we can uh, look at uh, that's already in our community. So I thought that would be very beneficial for people to learn about that model um, and how they do interact with people in the middle of crises um, and, and they get um, invited to uh, some calls and maybe there'll be some conversations about um, how there's been some avoidance of, uh, you know, police involvement. But nevertheless, um, I just wanted to know if uh, Becky would be there. So that was my only question. Yes. If someone from community will be there. All right, and can you send out um, to all council the dates again so we can add them to our calendar because um, I did not do that totally. Yes, sure will. Thank you. Any, anything else on this one? I'd just be interested in hearing, Kelly, if, what the next couple of ones are and if you know what the themes are gonna be for them after tomorrow night's. Um, sure, so for um, September 22nd, that's the Zoom meeting. Um, and the focus area is special needs populations. And so we've got Mary Roberts from the village community uh, and then Sarah Martinez from Access to Independence of Eastern Iowa that have confirmed that they would be available. Uh, and then September 26th is still in limbo uh, as far as focus and service providers. Um, September 29th, uh, focus areas, domestic abuse, child abuse, victim outreach. Um, and Christy Fortman-Dozer from DVIP, Karen Evans from DHS, and attorney Zimmerman Smith from the county have confirmed. 
Thanks. Mm -hmm. um, Council, I also uh, maybe would um, give uh, Ryan uh, a chance to speak. Ryan uh, sent me a note earlier in the week and um, wondered what the reception might be to doing something uh, that was focused on the on the on the student population um, near campus. Um, so as Kelly mentioned, we, we've struggled to get the, the, the meeting on the 26th uh, programmed. We could look at um, either rescheduling that for, for a, a good time with, with students or adding a, a, another listening post to focus on students. But Ryan, maybe, maybe you can uh, jump in and kind of talk about why you think that's important. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I just uh, had some conversations with other USG members and um, kind of brought up the um, the fact that, you know, students have been leading um, a lot of these, you know, a lot of the protests, a lot of these changes, um, certainly been leaders in the community. And um, I think it would be a really good idea to have a night to address just specifically student concerns um, for a couple of reasons. One, just the fact that students have been leading um, uh, in this movement, but also um, I think as we've all seen, there are certainly generational differences in opinions about um, what we want to see in our community. And so I think in some ways it actually might help to bring a more um, fruitful dialogue and discussion if students had a night to themselves to voice their opinions as well as um, for the adults that would come in a way to not feel pressured by students um, to not speak their mind for fear that there might be disagreements and so on, because um, that's certainly one thing is that we might have disagreements because just generationally, um, as we've seen in this movement. And so I think just between those couple of things, it'd be a really good idea to have a night that's just geared um, purely towards students. And it, it might make some students feel a little bit um, more likely to come um, and like they're being heard um, uh, specifically by council. I think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a very good idea. Do you think the 26th is too soon, Ryan, or could we take that 26th and make it that? And then I guess my question would be, is there a possibility we could do that on the Pentecost? I don't remember the location for the 26 that we originally had set. I would have to check with, um, obviously, with scheduling stuff on the Pentecrest um, and whether or not the 26 would be too soon. Um, that only really gives us 11 days. Um, so I know, I mean, two, if it's two weeks out, I can, I almost guarantee that we can get that scheduled. Um, the 26 might be mildly soon. Why don't you work on it from your end? I, I think I'm hearing that that council is supportive of doing something dedicated to the students. And to me, it would make sense if we're going to do that to do it on the Pentecrest, unless you have a better idea. But given that we're trying to keep these things outside, we want to do it sooner rather than later before the weather turns on us. Yeah, I think maybe maybe if I just work with um, work with Jeff and Ashley and say staff and um, to figure out that scheduling and we can get that scheduled, you know, hopefully by the end of this week. If that works. 
Yeah, and maybe uh, Kelly can just uh, email all of us and um, if, if the 26 would be moved or <coughs> who wants to be a part of that, but I think we can uh, work that out all offline. All right, um, we are uh, um, only have about 15 minutes left um, here. I did want to get to the next item um, just to have some comments because that is definitely um, on the website maybe to give information about where people can see the, um, we gave the video out um, and maybe that's the body camera and um, wait, no, it must be number two in a way. So um, is there anything else on here that people want to talk about um, before we, um, I, I think just for public information, we just gave out the video after the last meeting on that Thursday um, and it's on the city website. Um, I just wanted to mention that the CPRB is doing its public forum on uh, next Monday, the 21st at 5.30. You just need to go to the, the, uh, the city website and sign up for it and you'll get a link. And uh, I know they would appreciate um, having a lot of public input. Just a reminder, if there's more than three council members on there, we can't speak. But it is, I've always found it helpful to go and to listen. Okay. Um, I, we are gonna get to the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission that's on our agenda tonight on our formal agenda. And so looking forward to that conversation. Um, is there, and I am so sorry because um, these don't have numbers on them, but the um, I was referring to the tear gas, rubber bullets, flashbangs and protest. Uh, that is the video that is on the city website. Um, so that was something that was directed by council last uh, meeting. And that was put out that Thursday after our last council meeting. That's what I was re referring to. So I just wanted to clarify, sorry about that. I know that we're gonna have a, 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 a discussion tonight with Truth and Reconciliation. And so unless there's someone else that wanna talk about any item here, um, we started the conversation, which is great about the housing, um, affordable housing plan. And so uh, we'll wait for something there. And then uh, next uh, work session, we'll probably uh, try to dive into this a little more and make sure that we're checking some things off as well or making some plans. Unless there is anything else that anybody wants to address. Well, just really briefly, Mayor, in case people haven't had a chance to look all the way through, or members of the public haven't had a chance to look all the way through our September 10th info packet that this is part of, there was the report on military-grade equipment included in there, which was uh, just recently completed, as well as the um, general order modifying the use of uh, body-worn cameras and car recording that had some uh, pretty extensive updates in my opinion. So thank you to staff for getting those done and including those in our packet. Thanks, Laura. And I just wanted to uh, sort of second something that I think Councillor Thomas talked about at, at the last meeting, which is um, 
considering as we move forward, whether we might not merge, take advantage of COVID policing and merge it with police reform so that we can really uh, so that we can really roll back some of the minor traffic stops and and stop and really then put a stop to some of the disparate contact. Given that we have just a few minutes left, I don't know, and we kind of have a mishmash of things here in terms of our agenda because we're talking about the Black Lives Matter. We've got the info packet discussion that's later. I don't know if we'll get to, but some of that stuff in the info packets relates to this. So I guess I'm going to bring up um, it, well, no, I won't. I'm sorry. I'll wait. <laughs> this is a crazy, crazy schedule. Yeah, there's a few overlapping things uh, that comes up later through the info packets. Um, but all right, if any, does anyone have anything else for now? I'll just mention quickly that, you know, I have been, and I, I, I at least, I think all of us have been getting quite a bit of correspondence related to the, uh, you know, the IFRs, um, that architectural framework relating to, you know, community wellness and, um, accountability. And I, I've been trying to use that as a kind of a reference as I think about our response to the policing question. Uh, so for example, with, um, with the student engagement, uh, one of the items, policy areas that that architecture refers to is the alcohol and drugs. And, um, you know, in looking at this, this uh, Iowa City Police Department's statements that I've found in the, in the yearly budget report, there's a, a fairly strong emphasis on uh, enforcing underage drinking. Uh, so that, that's an important piece of our police uh, operation in terms of its day-to-day -day activities. So I, I think to me, and I, I did contact Ryan earlier uh, or late last week, um, that that, like traffic law enforcement, I think is a, is a potentially um, fruitful area to explore at this particular point in time uh, to, to see if we want to consider uh, you know, really take a dive into our policies related to uh, underage drinking and, and the drinking question in general and, and have that conversation with the students um, and see what may come out of it. Because it, as I said, I think at this particular moment in time, like with traffic law enforcement where things are, have been disrupted to some extent, uh, I think that's an opportunity to explore other ways of thinking about um, you know, how we deploy our, our resources in that area. If Ryan's still on, I think that would be a good point for that uh, listening post uh, that's geared towards the students. I think if you can emphasize that and, and have the students think uh, what their thoughts are on that, I think that's a good idea, John. Yeah, I would add that that's certainly between traffic stops and probably, I mean, when students think of their interaction with the police in Iowa City, they're probably thinking of um, downtown and underage drinking. Um, that's probably the greatest or most likely place that they interact um, with ICPD. Um, so that's certainly uh, an important part that I think would be helpful to talk about at the listening post. And students would definitely have opinions about it. 
Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much to everybody joining in on, on that discussion. Um, we'll move on to clarification of agenda items, unless uh, there's anything else. Don't want to cut anybody off. There are five, I, I will mention that today there are five um, res um, proclamations today and didn't know if anyone uh, wanted to kind of volunteer. I know uh, Councillor Taylor uh, volunteered to take over, um, I think it's the, mid the midwifery week. And if so, you can just contact me. Um, once we get off and say, hey, I'll do this one. So I won't uh, spend any more time there. But if you're interested in taking any of those, just let me know. And uh, any other items on the formal agenda for clarification? I just wanted to let people know when we do get into the formal meeting um, in the consent calendar, um, we've gotten a lot of letters that are essentially form letters that have a lot of questions in them related to policing and Black Lives Matter. And I talked with Jeff this afternoon and I am going to be asking Jeff to go through those questions and answer those publicly. Um, it has to do with the, you know, are, are the police officers being trained to de-escalate you know, altercations, that sort of thing? Are they forbidden from using chokeholds, et cetera? I think to really try and get some of this information out there, um, with a number of these letters that we're getting that are, they're basically form letters. We've had some that are handwritten. Um, so I am gonna be asking him to go through those questions and give those answers to the public when we're in the formal meeting. I'm okay with that, Susan. Anything else from the formal agenda? Info packet September 3rd. Info packet September 10th. I apologize if I can go back to the third for just a minute. I, th I hope that people looked carefully at IP3, which is the CPRB's annual report. Um, I think there was a lot of good information in there. Um, five complaints filed in fiscal year 2020. I think there was a total of 11 allegations within those five complaints, and they were all um, not sustained both by the police chief and by the CPRB. Um, and also, if you've been reading any of their minutes, um, they really are working to get some information from former members, et cetera, on ideas for changes um, to the CPRB. So um, that was it. I'm sorry, I was a little slow on the date there. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, on the 10th, IP6 on the body cams, since we've gotten to that, um, I just want to let all of you know that I did talk with Jeff earlier today about a, a, one of the issues in there, and that is, uh, I guess, two issues. How do officers know if their body cam is malfunctioning? 
And the response was, well, sometimes they know and sometimes they don't. When they turn it on, it's supposed to have a light come on. It's supposed to vibrate. But there can be issues that it could malfunction and they would not be aware of it. So that's, you know, one of those glitches with technology that we all have. And the second one was the issue of if they do know it's malfunctioning and they're out in the field, um, having to come back to the station downtown to get a new one if they don't have an emergent situation. And my question was, can we make that a decision of the shift commander instead of the officer so that it doesn't become a judgment call um, for which they might ultimately be disciplined um, later on, depending upon how it's looked at. But the answer that Jeff got back from um, Interim Chief Brotherton was a concern that the, the shift commander is not always immediately available. And they both, I think, felt pretty strongly that if an issue did come up with this, that, a, that an officer did not come back and get one because there was an emergent situation, that they felt that they could deal with that fairly um, in terms of any discussions or reporting after the fact. So I just wanted to make sure that uh, we looked at that both from the standpoint of protecting the police officers and protecting the public, public um, when we have an officer out there with a camera that's not working. Okay. I had a question on uh, IP10, the taxi cab regulations. Uh, is, is the question there leaving the, um, the number of cab, cabs at four as, rather than uh, dropping them to two as requested by the, um, the taxi cab companies? Correct. That was the, I think you had some correspondence a couple of meetings ago from a, a company that wanted to reduce down to two vehicles. Uh, so this is the background on how we got to that minimum vehicle standard. I, one, one city that I, I did a little bit of a search on that and um, uh, Marion has a policy or an ordinance where it, um, it, it, it only requires that there be two vehicles uh, but one of them has to be in service all the time. So that, I don't know if, if that's something that we uh, may want to consider as, you know, if, if we were to drop it to two, um, you know, having that requirement that one of those two vehicles has to be in operation 20, you know, 24 hours. There, there has to be constant service from at least one of those vehicles all the time. But that, that was one option that um, in, in my little bit of research seemed like one way of, of, of approaching that. And I don't know if that was talked about uh, as part of the, the two, reducing it to two or not. What do you mean by that, John? And also for the city manager, what, what we have right now, what team believes right now for operation-wise? Well, we're, as, as, I, as I understand it, we require the, the taxi cab companies to have uh, a minimum of four vehicles. And there's been a request by the cab companies to drop it to two vehicles. And what I found with Marion, Iowa, outside Cedar Rapids, was they have uh, a, a two-vehicle two requirement, um, you know, minimum, 
uh, and one of those vehicles has to be in service all the time. I'm talking about uh, what we have currently on the, like if they have four vehicles or if have, they have one, uh, what's the requirement for like they when they have to be available? That I don't know. You're asking currently, Maz? Uh-huh, yes, currently. Cur currently, they have to have a minimum of four vehicles when they they renew their company license. But it doesn't matter. They have one of them have to be operated all the time. Um, let me look through this because I Ashley's kind of my point person on this. But um, I believe they have to they have to have a twenty four hour twenty four seven answering call. Just call answering, right? Well, no, we we had we had those um, oh, in there, really and those were dropped. Those were dropped. Okay. So we had like the the office requirement in in Iowa City or Coralville, and then a, a twenty four seven operation, but those were were dropped from the requirements. This is Eleanor. I don't recall a, a requirement that they be operating always, other than that. I think, you know, uh, John Thomas, I don't know if you knew that uh, the people who have like tax companies in this area is we have like main big companies, yes, but most of the other is really low income people who are doing this. And uh, this kind of requirement will be like obstacle. I guess we need to leave it as it is, as it was, uh, with minimum of two vehicles. Well, it's four vehicles. But right now they reduce it to two, right? No, no, it's four. Are you? Four. Is, you yeah, it's four. But what where the two come from? I did not follow that. That was requested by the tax taxi companies, correct? Yeah, but are we doing it? It was requested are, by one specific that, taxi company, no. I think. Yeah, I guess uh, that means they don't have enough business. That's why they requested to down to two. And I, I mean, like, even if we guaranteed that to two, we don't have to require them to operate it 24 hours because I guess what was everything going on right now, maybe there is no business. Yeah, I, I, wasn't, oh, I wasn't necessarily advocating for that. I was just, um, it was another variable, um, you know, with, with the idea being that it seemed one of, one of the issues associated with this question is, the, the legitimacy and viability of the service and that, um, you know, the fewer the cars that are part of the fleet, the less viable the service may be. Well, you know, what in reading Marion's, it seemed like one, one way of trying to address maintaining service with fewer vehicles is ensuring that at least one of them is in service at all, at all times. It, it's not an area I have a lot of, um, it, is this a conversation we can pick back up? It's uh, 10 minutes till seven. I think so, yeah. Okay, great. All right, we're gonna get off now and we'll be back at seven. All right, so we are uh, resuming our work session. And I know that Councillor Thomas had, um, and Councillor um, uh, Mayor Pro Tem were in conversation just as we had to end, so. Mayor, can I hop in with just a little bit of information if we're talking about the taxis? Yes. 
Um, so we we had the request from the cab company to go from four down to two for the the maximum requirement or minimum requirement. Um, and council had asked for some history, so that's your IP ten in the September tenth info packet. Um, from a staff perspective, I I think with the when we the changes that have evolved with the business renewal change to being once a year, and then with the TNCs, the the number of pop up companies during the football season has dra dropped dramatically. Um, we don't seem to have that issue anymore. Um, and I did survey some other other cities. About half of them responded back, um, but. Clinton, Cedar Rapids, Waterloo, and Dubuque, they have no minimum. Corville is four, four taxi cabs and four drivers. Um, I was hoping to hear back from Ames, but I, I didn't. That would have been a, a good comparable with us. Um, and then currently just the, the two companies, Big Ten has two vehicles um, since they're able to do that with the uh, the mayor's order and the suspension of the requirement of four cabs and yellow cab has 17 vehicles. And hopefully that will help with your discussion. Thanks, Kelly. So Kelly, you're saying that with the changes to the once a year licensing in May in particular, that you're not we're not really seeing any of these kind of pop-up kinds of companies come football season. Is that right? Not, not like we were. And I think some of it has to do with like Uber and Lyft also. Mm -hmm. um, I think the co combination of the two. Given that situation, I'm willing to entertain the idea of going to a minimum of two. Um, I, I just wanted to make sure on that because let me tell you, when you go back and look at that history, I can tell you over the last 10 and a half years, I don't know how many council meetings I've sat in that we've talked taxis. <laughs> I mean, it's just really been kind of crazy. But I think with the, the TNCs, which are basically the Uber and Lyft, that really has changed the landscape a lot. And obviously we're in unprecedented waters right now with the pandemic and with the cancellation of football season or at least delay, whatever. Um, so I'm willing to, to go to the two, which I'm assuming would require staff to bring back an, an ordinance to us. Correct. I also would be in favor of going to the two rather than the four because uh, as you'd said, uh, Susan, the Lyft and Uber did change the landscape of our taxi cab business in our town significantly. Uh, we're down to just the two, as, as she said, the big 10 and yellow. Uh, and, and that's a shame, I think, because uh, there were some independent, we talk about independent and, and uh, uh, businesses, small businesses, and, and that's what this, these were for these folks was business. So um, I think uh, we should uh, we should encourage them, and I think bring it down to two might help. Yeah, I would agree with the two as well. Um, I think um, Mayor, I forgot who had proposed the. They looked at another community. Maybe it was Marion, where it was twenty four seven, and I would be like Mayor Pro, I, and I'm with Mayor Pro Tem that we shouldn't do those requirements. So definitely, uh, I support the two with no um, just changing that. Um, only. 
Yeah, I think the two seems, all things considered, a, a reasonable change. All right, so it seemed like we have majority there. Any other comments? Hearing none. All right, is there, um, we, are there any items from the info packet that anyone wanted to mention? And then after that, I think um, we'll probably entertain an adjournment from work session. I quickly would mention um, IP 11 uh, on the 10th, the um, memo from the climate action coordinator, you know, the, the numbers are, are we're, we're tracking well, but it's really primarily because of the actions of MidAmerican and the university. And so, you know, issues related to reducing carbon emissions um, other, other than for those two factors, you know, we're, we're losing ground. So um, it's just something to keep in mind. Don't really have any, any thoughts beyond that other than perhaps with the fires in, in the West that um, the emphasis on uh, adaptation, uh, you know, if you look at actions, whether they're uh, mitigation or adaptation, uh, I personally feel that we need to be as concerned with adaptation as we do with mitigation um, and, you know, how that would translate to conditions here uh, because climate change is not some future event. It's happening right now. And um, so we need, I think, to acknowledge the fact that, uh, you know, we may not be able to meet our goals, at least in, in as timely a fashion as we would like. Uh, so we, we need to be thinking adaptation as well as mitigation. Hmm. Any other IP item? Hearing none, uh, are we good to adjourn for the evening? Um, we are, but I'd just like to make one comment that I met, meant to make at the end of the, the formal meeting, which is, you know, as we've seen and heard about, people are hurting. There are people who have experienced trauma. There are people who, who are having enormous difficulties. Some of them we know, some of them we don't. I just asked that everybody give people space and grace. Thank you. And Mayor, I'd just like to go back to, um, John mentioned the fires, and I, I would like to say that uh, uh, I know many many in the community have uh, friends and relatives that, that live on the West Coast, and, and our thoughts are certainly with that it's the entire West Coast that's just literally burning, and then there are others in, in the country that are facing hurricanes, so my thoughts are certainly with all the members of these communities that are facing these. All right, anything else? Hearing nothing, then we're adjourned for the night. Thank you, counselors, and thanks to the public and um, for being with us tonight. And of course, to our staff for uh, being with us as well. And have a good night, everybody. Thank All you, right. Mayor. Good night.